Let's open up our Bibles. And I'm embarrassed to have the same glasses as Mike, but he gave these to me for Christmas, so. John chapter 3, I'm not trying to be cool. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. It's interesting, Nico is Greek, so the Hellenism had traveled throughout the world, and even, even the Jews were being sucked up by the Greek influence. This man came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, these wonders, these miracles, unless God is with him. Jesus said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the only man Jesus said this to. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? He's too smart for that answer. We'll talk about that in a minute. Jesus answered and said, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't even enter the kingdom of God. That which is flesh is flesh, that which of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, this is the third time that I say to you, you must be born again. This is an imperative. Jesus didn't say, hey, I think it's a really good idea you get born again. Or here's option A and then B, and you know, B's really good, I think you should get born again. This is an imperative, not only to this man, but for all men that would ever live. You must be born again. And then he gives him an illustration, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, you cannot hear the sound of it. Cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going, so is everyone born in the Spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus said, are you not the teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. Now, Nicodemus said, we know you're a teacher come from God. In other words, I'm speaking for a delegation. Jesus said, so am I. <laughs> this delegation's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things, and it's, I'm adding this, it's blowing your mind. And how will you receive heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. That's interstellar stuff there. Then he gave him something he could understand. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is the book of Numbers, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that, that's the cross. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Joan Osborne had a popular song, and if you know the song, you'll date yourself for real today. I found out it was actually written by one of the Hooters of Philadelphia fame. It was called, If God Were One of Us. The lyrics say, if God had a name, what would it be, and what would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had one question? And yeah, yeah, God is great, yeah, yeah, God is good, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it if it meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? And yeah, yeah, God is great. And yeah, yeah, God is good. And yeah, 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 what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? Something to ponder, something that people have pondered. Could the creator ever become the creation? And that's what we're studying in the book of John. John's Christmas story has no manger, has no wise men. The genealogy is in the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. 
And all things were created by him. He's holding the world together by the word of his power. And he came to dwell among us, veiled in flesh. That's the story of Christmas. We sing that song, right? Veiled in flesh, God became one of us to dwell among us, full of grace and truth. So John's gospel is encounters that Jesus has one-on-one with human beings just like you and me. What, what would the body language be? What would God say? You know, for years we wore those bracelets. What would Jesus do? That's what you're seeing in John. This is how Jesus would react to people like you and me. His first encounter with a human being is counterintuitive to me. Because by Jesus' own mission statement, he came to seek and save those who were lost. He said, the well do not need a physician, it's the sick. I've come to open blind eyes and deaf ears and set captives free. So why does he meet with Nicodemus, a deeply religious man? It's really something we need to think through. Uh, what, what is more surprising is no one else writes about this man. Matthew doesn't, Mark doesn't, Luke doesn't. No one really finds a need to write about him. John looks back 60 years and says, I remember that night when the wind was blowing. I remember Nicodemus. He mentions him three times in his gospel. Again, deeply religious. Verse 1 says he's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. A Pharisee is not a bad guy. You only think that because they're always trying to catch Jesus. That was a few of them. There were actually about 6,000 Pharisees. They were not on church staff. They're not religious professionals. They were part of a movement. If you lived in Jesus' day and you were Jewish, you were either a Sadducee, a Pharisee, or an Essian. The Pharisees were... Those who took the Bible literally, they were f- f- uh, politically motivated and separate from the world. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like evangelicals today. They really had a hunger for God despite all their rule keeping. And this man is a ruler of the Jews. He's one of 70, the Sanhedrin in Israel. He's a big dog religiously, right? He's, he's at the top of the ladder. Uh, there's a few other things we know about Nicodemus. Uh, Jesus calls him in verse 10, the teacher in Israel. So he had the number one podcast, right? At dinner time, you quoted this guy. He probably had half the Bible memorized. And it says in verse 2, he comes to Jesus by night. If you picked out 10 random commentaries on John, they would all tell you he came to Jesus by night because he was in fear. Fear that the Jews would know, fear that he would lose his reputation. And I think there's a little bit of that. But I think the reason he comes to Jesus is the reason we all come. He's curious. I've studied leadership my entire life. And once you get below the eight or nine principles of leadership, the one thing you find out about leaders and what makes them leaders is they're curious by nature. Oftentimes leaders are willing to go two or three steps beyond the normal person. And again, that's what makes them great. I think Nicodemus is curious. I think he also has a hunger that every one of us has inside of us. There was a fascinating study that was done in the 90s uh, as scientists in Bristol, England studied the brain. I don't know if you know this, we know more about the brain in the last 25 years than the whole history of medicine. Uh, You're probably seeing a lot of these studies and a lot of these books being written about the brain. And these scientists from Bristol, England, they put the results in an article called Hardwired for God. Their conclusion from their research was that the human brain is predisposed, or what they say is hardwired for belief in God. They believe human beings are programmed to believe in God because it gives them a better chance at survival. 
In a 2009 study by Bruce Harrell, professor of development of psychology uh, in England, they looked into children's brains development patterns and saw that through the process of evolution, these people with religious tendencies would benefit more from belief because it helped them to work in groups or tribes. As a consequence, quote, unquote, supernatural beliefs became hardwired into our brains from birth, leaving us receptive to the claims of religious organizations. Professor uh, Hood's research shows that children, I found this just over the top because Jesus said we must become like little children, have a natural, intuitive way of reasoning that leads to all kinds of supernatural beliefs about how the world works. Isn't that fascinating? That's why we do children's ministry. As they grow up, they overlay these beliefs with more rational approaches, but the tendency to illogical supernatural beliefs remains as religion. These conclusions echo other studies by those of the science who have studied the mind at Oxford University uh, in 2008, one study said there was evidence linking religious feelings to particular parts of the brain. Love the research. Obviously, I'm going to draw a different conclusion. I don't think it's from evolution. Look, God designed us spirit, soul, and body. What that means is your brain is physical. It's an organ. It's the hardware that runs the software of your spirit and soul. It's the way God made us. Now, Blaise Pascal, the brilliant French philosopher, knew nothing about the brain. He knew everything about the spiritual vacuum inside of us. And he coined the phrase that every one of us has a God-shaped hole that has to be filled. The problem is we fill it with the physical and it doesn't work. We fill it with money and power and sex and climbing the ladder and it doesn't work. Now, a thousand years before Pascal, Solomon figured this one out. He writes in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, God has made everything beautiful in his time and he's put eternity into the heart of man. That's why you have a spiritual vacuum. That's why you have a hunger and a curiosity for God and all the big questions of life. See, even though we drown them out with earbuds, right? The big questions of life come up. Why am I here? Where am I going? How do I find purpose? You can drown it out all you want. It's going to bubble up. And Solomon, of all the people that ever lived, we should take his advice. He was David's son. He was the king in Israel. He built the temple. He had more money, more power, more wealth than any of us will have combined. And he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. It's all vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. And he writes at the end of his life, fear God and keep his commandments. This is man's all. Now, I want to stay on this theme just for a minute. And uh, I want to tell you about a book I read on sabbatical uh, called Superstition and Science. It traced philosophical and church thought through the Enlightenment, written by Doug Wilson at Cambridge. Look at the next picture. This is how much I dog-eared this book. And what I didn't dog-ear, I highlighted, Okay. Now look, I know you all slept through this in high school. Please don't sleep right now. This is important. So I'm reading this book, and I got stuck like in the 1600s with Rene Descartes and Blaise Pascal. And was fascinated. They both grew up in church. However, Descartes, uh, because of the 30-year war and some of the atrocities he saw in life, uh, he became really the pioneer or the father of rationalism. And that simply means 
that you set everything aside, experience, etc., anything you were taught, and only use what your brain can reason. So his suggestion is when you grow up, take, take anything you were told about faith and just chuck it like Aesop's fables, okay? So he becomes the father of reason and rationalism and really dies a deist, right? Well, Blaise Pascal has a similar background. You know, both men were scientists, both men were brilliant. Uh, Pascal invents calculus, which some of you are probably mad that he did that, but that's helped us out. Pascal comes to all the different conclusions. And he comes up with Pascal's wager, which, until I read this book, I never liked. Pascal's wager is, life is short, eternity is long, you, you should gamble that there is a God, because if there is, you got a long eternity to live, right? I never liked that because you would never scare anyone into the kingdom, and we're not here to wager on God. But when I read this book, I understood what was going on in Pascal's mind. Here's what Pascal said, and it was the antidote to rationalism. He said, if we submit everything to reason, our religion will be left with nothing mysterious and supernatural. If we offend the principles of reason, like don't be stupid, don't check your mind at the door, our religion will be absurd and ridiculous. Now, he brings out the flaw in rationalism. He said, every human being has to make up his mind about the existence of God. Okay, every human being. But I'm made in such a way that I cannot believe, like in other words, if reason and rationalism are true, yet I'm forced to gamble. Here's what we're taking to the bank. Pascal said, seek out the divine spark within, the intu intuition that reason has its limits. Act on that, and experience will bring passion and reason into alignment. That's brilliant. What Pascal was saying, I've lived through. So I've been Christian long enough that uh, when I got saved in the 80s, early 80s, Josh McDowell was the leading apologist. He had a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That was the go-to for everyone. Uh, years later, Lee Strobel comes along and writes a book called The Case for Christ. Both men avowed atheists. Both men wrote their books to disprove Christianity and became believers while writing those books. I've sat down with both of those men. Josh McDowell's done several sizzling summers for us. And both of them have told me, Bob, at the end of the day, we investigated the claims of Christ, we wrote these books, but that's not what brought us to faith. At the end of the day, it was the heart, and it was a childlike faith. It's exactly what Pascal said. Information will never lead you to transformation. Information has to go 18 inches from the head to the heart. And if you'll listen to your heart, and if you're curious like in Nicodemus, it will draw you to Jesus. And Jesus comes to Nic Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, no one can do what you're doing unless God be with them. What a skilled opening. What a politician. Jesus doesn't flinch. Jesus is not a respecter of persons. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again, or you'll never even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus' answer tells us where he is. He said, how can a man be born again? Can he enter again into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Man's too smart to answer that way. You know what he's saying? What some of you are thinking? Some of you are thinking, like Nicodemus, I lived 
my whole life like this. He has to be at least 70 years old. I've been in this system. I've done what I've told. I've risen to the top. And you're telling me I have to take this resume and put it in a trash can and start all over? See, he knows the requirement. He knows what's going on here. Jesus is gentle with him. He said, Nicodemus, which is born of water or of the flesh, is of the flesh, what is born of the spirit is spirit. Everybody has a birthday. Everybody knows their mother, right? We were all born of the flesh. We all have fleshly desires, right? We were all born of the flesh. What he, he's doing a diagnostic on Nicodemus saying, Nicodemus, you were born once, but you were never born of the spirit. You never had this encounter with the Holy Spirit that, that led to a different a different way of processing life, a sixth sense. Very rarely did Jesus ever use the phrase kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, he said, the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit because they're spiritually discerned. There's a new dynamic. Uh, Paul went on to say in Romans, the kingdom of God is not meat, it's not drink, it's not anything physical, it's peace, joy. It's something the Holy Spirit brings. Now, Jesus said, look, you're the teacher in Israel. You should know these things. You should know Ezekiel 36 to 39. You should know that God said he would put a new heart within us, take out the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh. Nicodemus, you remember in Ezekiel where where Ezekiel was taken by the Spirit and he saw a valley of dry bones and said, can these bones live? And he said, yeah, the wind of my spirit will come and I'll revive. Are you not the teacher in Israel? And remember, Nicodemus would have probably memorized at least the first five books of Moses. He's the teacher in Israel. Jesus gives him another illustration. Very hard for us to understand because we don't speak Hebrew or Greek. He says to him, the wind blows where it wishes and you cannot determine where it came from. You can only see the evidence or hear the sound. Uh, It's a play on words because in Hebrew and Greek, the word wind and spirit is the same. So Hebrew is ruach, which is wind or spirit, and pneuma in Greek. That's why there was a great rushing wind when the church was born at Pentecost. So so there's another illustration with Nicodemus. But then he finally gets to what Nicodemus can understand. But before we get there, I have to ask you a question. You know enough about John now. John's a mystic. John has strategy. And you have to ask yourself a question. Why is John starting with this man? Why isn't he not starting with someone who's a sinner, an outcast, Why start with Nicodemus? And I think I know the answer. This is my opinion and my experience. You can form your own opinion. In my 30-some years of following Christ, I believe Satan's greatest strategy, and remember, he's a liar, and he lies from the beginning, and it's in his nature. His most deceptive scheme or tool to keep people from Jesus Christ and salvation is religion. And that's why Jesus' first encounter is with the most religious man of the day. The reason why religion keeps us far from God is because religion tells me, I'm okay, you're okay. Remember that book out, I think it was the 70s, I'm okay, you're okay? If I ever write a book, my book's going to be called, I'm a mess, you're a mess, okay? Because that's truer to reality, right? See, See, religion does this. You're in church, the person next to you is a good guy, everybody's good, everybody's okay. We all know that's not true. 
We're all sinners saved by grace. There's myriads of problems in here. Jesus really didn't like religion. Jesus said, if the blind follow the blind, they both fall into the ditch. Uh, Christians fascinate me. They sit around and talk about how bad the culture is, right? If you get around them long enough, oh, the culture is so bad. You know, kids have iPhones now, and the public school's this, and there's shootings, and, and you know, Christianity's waning, and we, we, it's all we do is complain about the culture. And I'm like, guys, time out. Calvary Chapel was born out of the late 60s. The greatest, one of the greatest revivals of the 20th century you, you realize 1968-69 was a dividing line of culture? Sexual revolution, the pill came along, Charles Manson, hippies. I was eight or nine. It was a dark time. Drugs, uh, crazy. God has no problem with culture. He saved Nineveh. They were the worst culture that ever existed. God has no problem with culture. The problem is religion. Because religion convinces people that they're okay. Religion, like all idols, and religion is an idol. Calvary Chapel can be an idol. Your Bible can be an idol. Religion, like all idols, overpromises and underdelivers. Idols overpromise and underdeliver. The day someone starts on drugs, there's an overpromise. You're going to have this great feeling all the time, and then you wind up in a ditch. Money Overpromises, underdelivers. You know, you go out and buy this brand new Porsche. And if you have a Porsche, that's okay. I'm not, I'm not against it. But you go out and buy this brand new Porsche. It's great. It's wonderful. The Porsche can't help you in the trials of life. It can't speak. Like most idols, it can't talk. It can't comfort you. It can't hug you. And religion and Nicodemus in that day were as empty as the six water pots that Jesus turned water into wine. Empty, dry, made of stone. That's all what idolatry is. Now finally Jesus gives Nicodemus something he can understand. He says, Nicodemus, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him should not perish, perish, but have eternal life. This is Numbers 21. If you know the story, God delivers his people out of Egypt. For 40 years, gives them the manna. For 40 years, pillar of cloud by day, uh, the pillar of fire by night. God is very benevolent, and the people grumble, and they complain, and finally God gets tired of it, and he sends fiery serpents into the camp, and these people are being bit, and the venom's going to their heart, and they're dying. Moses, who was a far greater pastor than I'll ever be, prays for these people, prays for grumbling, complaining people, and God relents. And he said, Moses, here's what I want you to do. Take a serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and whoever looks at it shall live. He didn't say whoever gives to the building of the pole, whoever is baptized at the pole, whoever builds the pole, whoever touches the pole. He said, no, if you just look, you'll live. Now, everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the New Testament. The serpent was a symbol of sin, Genesis 3, right, in the garden. Bronze is always a symbol of judgment. 
Uh, and when you walked into the temple, the first thing you would see is the brazen altar, an altar made out of brass. You put an animal there, it would be, its throat would be cut. It was a sign the animal was being judged. God said in Deuteronomy, if you don't listen to my law, the heavens, when you pray, will be like brass. Revelation 1, Jesus, in that description John has, his feet are like burnished brass. He's coming to judge the world. And the pole is a symbol of the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, that's not like at your Bible study you're raising your hands. No, if I be lifted up, if I'm put on a pole, I'll draw all men to myself. Later, John's going to write in chapter 8 uh, that when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know I am he. So this was a type of what God was about to do. And think of the metaphor, right? It's an apt description. We were all born in sin. All like sheep have gone astray. We, we all were born in sin. Venom is making its way, and one day we're going to die. See, the fallacy is how long it's taken. You, you think, oh, you know, I'm good with God, nothing's happened. No, 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 think about it. Adam was told, in the day you sin, you will surely die. The day they sinned, they didn't die physically. They died spiritually, and then they eventually died physically. We're all going to die. Venom, sin, is working its way. The remedy is look, and you shall live. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, this is one you can't understand. I've said this a hundred times. I'll keep saying it until I drive it home, and maybe somebody needs to hear it. Every other religion is spelled D-O. What you have to do, Christianity is spelled done. It's already been done. I have a lot of these little charts that I keep. This is Christianity, cults, and religions. It's a side-by-side -side comparison of every religion, cult, and sect. And then it's what they believe about God, the Holy Spirit, the afterlife, and salvation. 16 religions and sects here. Every one, there's something you have to do. Christianity says, no, 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 no. There's nothing you can do. It's already been done. Yeah. Now, this is astounding. I never read the Bible until I became a Christian. The day I said the sinner's prayer, I remembered seven encounters I had with either scripture or people that preached to me. This is astounding. Uh, they say it takes 30, 30 seeds planted for faith to sprout up, right? Uh, so, you know, I grew up Catholic and we didn't even know what another church looked like where I lived. But I remember that my route to school, I would pass a church that had one of those signs. Uh, you ever see some of those signs, like weird things, like tuna fish or whatever, like these quaint sayings? Well, this one said, unless a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. Ne I passed that sign every day. Never remembered it until I became a Christian. God used that. That was a seed for me. It was like the thief on the cross, you know. Jesus Christ, king of kings, king of the Jews. That's, that's all he had. That was a seed. I remember in high school cutting through with my friends a parking lot and somebody preached the gospel to us and told us we had to be born again. Never remembered it. I remember a billboard that said Jesus is Lord. Never remembered it until I became a Christian. Billy Graham's son Franklin was working in the ministry and they were at a big crusade uh, at La Swan, Switzerland. And Billy comes to his son and said, uh, Franklin, you can't be in the ministry any longer because you're not a Christian. I just, you're not. 
He said, I love you, son. You'll always be my son. You just can't work in the ministry. You have to get another job. And uh, Franklin really took this to heart, talked to some mentors, prayed about it. Right there in Leswan, Switzerland, knelt by his bed and gave his life to Christ. Do you know what the scripture was? You must be born again. He said, the irony of that is I heard my dad preach on that hundreds of times. He said, but you know what the Holy Spirit told me? Being Billy Graham's son's not enough. It doesn't matter what home you were born into, what state you were born into. It doesn't matter what church you have gone to. The question is, have you been born again? Now, what was the result of this encounter? Uh, sometimes there is no result. The woman at the well became an evangelist, but we have no idea what happened. We have a record of this. If you can get to John 19, turn there. If not, I'll read it. Jesus has just been crucified. And in verse 38, it says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he took the body of Jesus, and here's our guy, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 100 pounds. It was a lot of money. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in stripes of linen, with spices, as the custom of the Jews was to bury now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. I've been there many times, and so have many of you. will be there next April. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And there they laid Jesus, because for the Jews it was preparation day, and the tomb was nearby. Wow. Something happened in the heart of Nicodemus. How do I know? He steps out of the shadows. He's willing to be discovered He's willing to lay his life down. He doesn't care about the resume. See, in the beginning it was, how can I be born again? I've got a stellar resume. Now he's like Paul. I was the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee. You know, this stellar resume I've put in the trash that I might know the excellence of knowing him. He said, I'm done. And he comes out of the shadows. And, and, and guys, we have no idea what went down. Two Pharisees are handling the body of Jesus. No one else is around. The disciples are all gone. The women, everybody's going back to their homes. And because Nicodemus was the teacher in Israel, I know what was, I think I know what was going through his mind. The spices, the bandages. And I know Isaiah 53 is coming to his mind. I know scripture is coming to his mind. I know God had to be a part of it. That, that his appearance was marred beyond that of any other man. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. As he sponged down the body of Jesus, as he laid the bandages on him, he probably thought about how he was wounded for our transgressions, maybe putting his finger in the nail scars. We don't know. And I think he went on to be a pillar in the early church and was born again. And like Mike said earlier, there is this gratitude. See, Christianity isn't you work your way up the ladder for good works and then you're in. See, it's you're in and now you have the faith to start doing good things. 
It's kind of counterintuitive. I'm going to close by asking everybody a question. And if you think, if you're a visitor and you think I ask this every week, I don't. I, I've preached through John 2004, 2011, and now 2019. And so I probably only ever ask this this way when I'm in this chapter of John. But here's the question. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? I didn't ask if you were baptized. I didn't ask if you go to church. I didn't ask if you were a good person. I didn't ask if you walk old ladies across the street. This is a question everybody has to face. If the answer is no, here's the good news of the gospel. It can happen today. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. Because there's nothing to do, it just takes a great surrender. That Jesus Christ is Lord, he's the Son of God, and no longer will I lead my life, he will, and you'll enter a brand new relationship with him. You'll be born again. If the answer is yes, how concerned are you that others might be born again? How concerned are you that people that you know and love would not perish? This generation, this culture, but might have eternal life. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? How can this be? Some of you are probably thinking, wait a second, how can this be? The answer is a verse that we on purpose have not read today. And don't look in your Bibles, it's the most famous verse in the entire Bible. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And here's the verse we stop at and don't read. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. God didn't give us gold. He's not going to write your name in the sky. He's not going to make it snow in summer. He gave the ultimate gift. He gave his only begotten son. I did a wedding yesterday, and the father of the bride is from Puerto Rico, lives in Miami now. We sat down, and he said, Bob, you want to hear my story? My wife looked across from me at 15 years of marriage and said, that's it. It's over. I'm getting a divorce. He goes, I was shocked beyond belief and uh, went on a soul-searching mission. Turned on the radio one day. Charles Stanley was on, and his message was, you must be born again. And Charles Stanley said something in that message, what's keeping you from the kingdom of God? And he said, I processed that for a couple of weeks, and the thing that was keeping me was the cross. Like this all-powerful God who could do anything, why the cross? It makes no sense. Two weeks later, he's in the car, turns on Charles Stanley, and Charles Stanley talks about why the necessity of the cross. That's how God works. And he became a believer, and he's on fire. The first time the word love appears in the Bible is Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham, take thy son, thy only son, the son that you love, and offer him on a particular place. First time it appears in Matthew is the voice comes out of heaven at Jesus' baptism, this is the son that I love, my only son, hear him. First time in Mark, same thing. First time in Luke, same thing. But the first time the word appears in John is right here. No longer does God love his only son, God now so loved the world, that you and me, that he sent his only begotten son, 
Whoever believe in him would have eternal life. Guys, this isn't a one-time transaction. I'm glad I'm Calvary Chapel. Let me do this and go on with my life. This is life-altering. There's an old saying, if you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. If you're born physically, you'll die physically, and then you'll die spiritually. But if you're born physically and spiritually, Jesus said you only die once. You'll die physically, but you'll live because I live. Maybe there's some people you need to ask who hang around church. Are you born again? And, and, and listen, we're not selling cars here, okay? This isn't hurry up and make your mind up, okay? I, I, that person who got baptized last week took four years. But maybe, maybe today is your fourth year. <laughs> maybe today is the day of salvation.